News. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan, Rockefeller Center, New York City, Newsstand Studios. Special Thanksgiving holiday edition where we're going to do two separate things an hour and a half. First, we're going to start with Matt Sartwell from Kitchen Arts and Letters doing a classic scene in the field. Yeah. And then we're going to do the Butterball Turkey Hotline expert herself. Barbara Robinson's coming on for the last half hour of our special hour and a half. So let's get cracking. Uh, John, how you doing? Doing great. Yeah? Everything Excited good? for today's episode. Yeah. yeah. So listen, I don't know if you know this, but people who can listen live on Patreon, did you know that uh, for the last half hour, this hour and a half, they can call in and have their very own... Uh, one-on-one with, like, a supervisor from the Butterball Turkey Hotline, not just, like, you know, the normal calling in, which they could do anytime. Did you know that? I didn't, but I'm really glad I know that now. Would yeah. definitely want to make me be a member, yeah. I know, yeah. I know. What else do they get if they join the Patreon? Access to the Discord, um, you know, with a great community of like-minded listeners, uh, discounts from books at Kitchen Arts and Letters, and really just a whole bunch of other great things. So you should all join cooking or uh, patreon.com slash cooking issues. Love it, love it. Uh, on the panels, we got Joe Hazen. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Getting Good to re- see everyone. Yeah, getting ready for the Thanksgiving. I am. Happy holidays. Yeah. You doing it uh, at your house? Uh, what are you doing? I'm doing it at our house. We have about 10 people, uh, including two ch- children under two years old, so it should be quite fun. So eight adults, two kids? Uh, exactly. Nice. All good right. mathematics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's a good number. Yep. Should be fun. I like that. And then coming back, special guest, Matt Sartwell. Good Thank to have you back. Thank you. Yeah. Happy to be back. Yeah. I'm uh, happy to be on Patreon, too. I'm a well, we appreciate Patreon it. member there. We appreciate it. Uh, mutual, su- mutual support, which I appreciate. I think that's important. Uh, now, going uh, all the way across the country on their side, in Los Angeles, we got, not in the same room, though, we have Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah? Yeah? Jackie Molecules, mm-hmm. what's up? Hey, hey, I'm good. Yeah, and then holding it down in Canada, Quinn, how you doing? I'm doing good. All right, right. So now, before we get to our classics in the field, and we know, we have obviously plenty to talk about because there are many classics in this field. Let's be, you know, clear. Uh, what, what are we all, uh, assuming that all of us do the, you know, some form of the Thanksgiving thing, what, what's, what's going on with people? What do you got going? Anyone? Anyone? How about you, John? You doing anything at the restaurant? You closed down. Uh, we're closed Thursday and Friday, but running pretty bare-bones stuff up until then. So mm, so you decided not to do the whole... So what do you think about that thing where people like uh, Maria Guarnaschelli, Nastasia, you'll remember this, never did Thanksgiving in her house, always Jean-Georges? Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of a baller move. Like, I don't want to cook. You know what I'm going to do? You know, daughter's a famous chef, right? She's, you know, world-renowned cookbook editor. Jean-Georges, every Thanksgiving. I'm sure it was a great meal. John, I haven't been to Jean Georges yeah. in over a decade, but Jean Georges, for the longest time, my favorite of the super high ends, just in terms of fun. Really? Yeah, I used to love going to Jean Georges back when I used to do that. Anyway, uh, so you decided not to do that, John, huh? In the restaurant? No, not at the restaurant. I mean, it's a wine bar. People don't come enough yet for that kind of a meal. So. Yeah. You got to plan so far in advance and build up a, a group of customers. Like, we would always be like, we're going to do New Year's at the bar, and then we don't sell it until, like, a month before, and then everyone already has a plan. Exactly, and, and it's a complete dud. Yeah, and then everyone loses money, and they're all ticked off. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's when your staff get crazy and saber champagne bottles with iPads and break them. Oh, and, God. Yeah. <laughs> I was not new staff. I was an owner. <laughs> uh, and to be fair to me, I didn't know that we didn't have Apple Care, one. And because uh, who doesn't have Apple Care? And two, uh, I shouldn't have broken. And three, <laughs> the bottle did saber and everyone enjoyed it. Good. You know? Good. 
so much for Gorilla Glass. What about you, Stas? What do you got going on? <laughs> I'm going to my parents' place. My sister's going to be here. Yeah, I want I want some sort of a uh, a live. Uh, you know, not publicly, but I want some sort of text as it's happening because it'll be after I'm eating, right? Because I'm eating East Coast time. I want like some sort of moisture check on the turkey. I'll, yeah, I'll get a sound. I'll give you sound so you can hear out. <laughs> <laughs> I like a turkey that's so dry that it's a, like a sound. I'm, I'm trying to think about it like... The best we well, look, look, like the best it could be is like the crunch of the skin, right? But then you're like, no, that's the breast meat. <laughs> oh my god, nothing worse than like a, you know. Though I have to say, a very thin slice and a lot of gravy can make up for a lot. And a dry, dry turkey breast with a boat ton of mayonnaise is fine on next day sandwiches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. What about you? What about you, uh, Senior Molecules? What are you doing? Well, uh, double double duty. We're doing Boston for my girlfriend's family, and then the next day in Connecticut with my brother. Oh, where in Connecticut? All Norwalk. Oh, Norwalk, Norwalk. You get it, like, what do you do after Thanksgiving? By the way, are you one of these let's go see a movie kind of people, or what? Like, what do you do? No, just, no, me either. No, I'm just, I'm just so tired because I eat, like the dinner lasts yeah. so long. I don't have to do much this year, which is blessed. My mom is, for the first time since the pandemic, my mom's letting people back into her house. And so we're having it at my mom's house. And, you know, she's got the, the stuffing recipe to beat all the, you know, so says Dave Chang, so say we all, I guess, that my mom's stuffing recipe is the best. I mean, I agree, obviously. Uh, but so usually, like the last time I had Thanksgiving with, you know, that side of my family, they didn't make enough. I didn't get leftovers, Right. Or like even when I used to cook Thanksgiving a lot, other people would take all the leftovers. I wouldn't have leftovers. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, I had to make a whole second Thanksgiving. So I told mom bluntly, I'm like, I'm so happy to come back to your house and make enough stuffing. <laughs> make enough stuffing. Don't make me make another batch the next day. Make enough turkey. Don't make me cook a whole other turkey the next day because I will and then I'll, I'll get bent about it. You know what I mean? Anyway. Uh, plus, all my brothers and sisters now are old enough that they can, you know, they can afford their own food. So hopefully there's some leftovers for all of us, you know? <laughs> Uh, what about you, Matt? What do you got going on? Uh, restaurant with oh, friends. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which, uh, which, uh, we're going to Dante on McDougal street oh, in the village. I didn't uh, know they did Thanksgiving. Uh, seems like the first year, but, uh, we have to sort of accommodate a variety of expectations. Mm. So a restaurant seemed to be the best way to do that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Am I allowed to ask more? Because it sounds like an interesting problem that you're navigating. Or would you prefer not to? I, I like the Scrivener. You would prefer not to. I, I think yes. Like Bartleby, <laughs> I will. Uh, I will not elaborate further. We're really happy to be getting together with this group of people, and this was the easiest way to make it happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. all right, Quinn, what do you got going? What, what, what uh, Thanksgiving? I mean, uh, I, I, we already did Thanksgiving. Yeah. They did oh it yeah. I forgot. Don't you have some sort of like pseudo thing that you? Oh, you already did it, right? Yeah. We, no, we have Thanksgiving. It's in October. <sighs> okay. Sneaking up on us. Yeah. Yeah. You're so close we, we'll right probably, across the border. We, we'll probably cook some big meal just because. Yeah. Yeah. So when do they eat turkey in Thanksgiving? I mean, uh, in Canada? Like, when's the, is there a big turkey holiday in, in Canada? I mean, like, yeah, it's Thanksgiving in October. Okay. All right. And like, uh, do you get like good deals on like turkey from across the border, like right after Thanksgiving, or no? 
Across the border. Yeah, us. Um, I, I.e. us. Like, you gotta remember, can't you, like, like, like America is only, like, 500 feet for, like, the, you, you get on the water and America's right there from Vancouver. Again, maybe, maybe, uh, on the mainland, but yeah. not on the island. I have to say, I, I say, I say this every year, I love Turkey. I'm gonna talk about this later, I guess, with, uh, Barbara Robinson, but a lot of people, uh, say bad things about turkey as a bird and uh, i love turkey taste of turkey smell of turkey turkey gravy please don't make me please don't make me chicken gravy and call it turkey gravy it's not right that's mean yeah it's just bad yeah oh that's a terrible what about a double stock where you start with chicken stock reinforced with turkey i'm okay with i'm okay with it because most time when you're starting with a quote-unquote stock it's really just like college broth bouillon which is you know relatively Bland, and so like if you do enough reinforcement, especially if you roast off the bones and uh, have some crusty outside bits with some fat in it, you get enough. The turkey is such a strong thing. I don't mind a little a little undercurrent of chicken. Uh, just the same way that I use I use crappy chicken stock as my base for most meat most meat based things because I don't really keep uh, meat stock in my in my freezer. I don't have like a thing full of veal stock i'm not like john here who has freaking freezer full of freaking veal stock in two different colors i wish yeah and some vegetable stocks but yeah really yeah. you're a veg stock oh yeah well just for recipe testing and things right now but the mm. plan is once my combi oven gets fit fixed to have many stocks so, many yes. stocks you're the man of many stocks beef duck yeah a whole bunch let me ask you a question escoffier style Ooh. right does anyone still mix that little bit of tomato pasting with their stock Yes. Really? I do. Yeah. Huh. I thought that was like. I've done that for. I've done that for a veg stock. Yeah, but it used to be that was like one of the main bases. He, they would stir a little bit of tomato paste in, right? Yep. Yeah, and I never understood it. Just like seems like it makes it harder to. Ah, uh, whatever. Yeah. You know. What ifs? Uh, all right, did I miss anyone? Stas, I got you. We're gonna get the we're gonna get the sound cam, but not for public consumption. I'm sorry, people. It's like uh, what was the old face that you used to make that people always wanted a picture of and you would not oblige? Vegan. Oh yeah, that Nastasia's vegan face. Yeah, this is gonna be like that. Like p- people are gonna be asking for you know for years. They're gonna be like, what's the what's the sound of the turkey? And we like, don't you wish you knew? Don't you wish you knew? You know. So, uh, I mean, if it's truly dry, it would just be the sound of like mouth noise, I guess. Oh God! Right? Remember when someone threatened? Your mouth would have to make them. Remember when someone threatened us all because of mouth noises on the radio? <laughs> they, yeah. I believe they, uh, Paul Adams, our friend Paul Adams from America's Test Kitchen, I believe they threatened his life specifically because he made extra mouth noises when we were tasting something, and someone was, you know, people are triggered. It was me in disguise. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll just say this. Uh, I'll report back. So my mom says all I need to make uh, is uh, bread for the cheese because we do, you know, cheese either. We do it before and after. Back to Maria Guarnaschelli for a minute, my cookbook editor, mother of Alex Guarnaschelli, you know, famous chef. Uh, she hated, I never told, in the same way that I never told her that, uh, you know, the photographer for the for the book was my is my brother-in-law Travis because she wouldn't allow me to work with family so we just never told her uh aside, you know aside from that the other thing I never told her was uh that I eat cheese both before and after the meal she hated people who had cheese before the meal if cheese came out before the meal 
she thought you were the lowest form of pond scum that was available. If cheese is an after meal situation. Any thoughts? That is the first time I have encountered that particular point of view. Um, I think I'm pond scum. Yeah. I th- well, I think she thought it was like an extremely American way of eating as opposed to like the kind of, you know, French restaurant tradition of cheese or dessert. And the correct answer is everybody? Both. Both. That is oh, the correct answer. Both. both. Yeah, correct. The answer is always both. Uh, I like it. But I like it both before and after as well. So that would be three. I'll take the dessert. I'll take the after dinner cheese and the before dinner cheese. <laughs> For instance, I think blues after dinner are lovely with a dessert wine. Lovely. But I'll also eat cheese. Before. Anyway, I'm making bread for the, for the cheese course, uh, Parker House Rolls for their Parker House Rollness, and dessert. And this year, I'm trying to do, uh, you know those, those checkerboard cakes? You know, yes. with the rings. So I'm, I 3D printed an extra tall three, uh, three and a half inch set of rings so that I can do a full height. New York cheesecake alternated with uh, pumpkin pie in a ring form, but like super tall. See what it works. Are they going to like cook in the same amount of time? Well, I'm going to use a combi oven. I'm going I'm to use the uh, Anova Precision Steam Oven. So since they're both custard based, I'm just going to fundamentally let it cook for like three hours at like, uh, you know, like 180 Fahrenheit or something like this. So the outside won't get overcooked while the inside is undercooked. I'm going to pre-brown the butter for the uh, graham cracker crust so it doesn't need to get any sort of heat on it. So I'm not going to have to do a water bath, right, because I got the steam oven. So we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. And then I'm going to do uh, – I always forget who did it, but whoever recommended the uh, acid-adjust key lime pie, I'm going to do a pomegranate version of that is the other thing. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fantabulous. You know what I'm saying? That sounds very attractive. It, it, yeah. Well, I want to go red, but not cranberry, because we're already going to have the cranberry with the thing, right? So, you know, we were like, no. Even though cranberry would be delicious, just not on Thanksgiving. You don't want a cranberry pie on Thanksgiving, right? Not if there's a lot of cranberry with the turkey. There had better be. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> there had better be. Okay. Oh, speaking of this, get this. So I'm at this wedding in uh, Houston uh, over the over the weekend. Uh, my sister got married. Gets, I didn't... My sister runs the space, space trash section of Houston Mission Control. She finds all the space, space trash and tracks it. Guess the smallest thing they can see from uh, the ground, like a, like a thousand kilometers away. Guess what size object they can track? Uh, license plate. Peppercorn. Whoa. Peppercorn. Serious technology. And... She said you would be extremely surprised how much damage something that's peppercorn uh, size can do when it's going 18,000 miles the wrong way. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 18,000 mile an hour. Anyway, yeah, space trash check, uh, checker. Anyway, I got a line on a cranberry sauce recipe, but then I asked for the recipe and it was not, it was not forthcoming. So I think I will never get it. I can't talk about it in case they do give it to me. I don't get it away, but... It is the craziest cranberry sauce recipe because the cranberries are not cooked. They're ground. Mm. I will say only this. They are ground mixed with a bunch of other things and lime jello. Anyone heard of anything like this? Never. Like, 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 like activated lime jello? Like you... Yeah. 
Not like the, well, not yet. But you know what's an, uh, a, a non, as you call it, activated lime a lime jello recipe, uh, a recipe from the '60s slash '70s that was awesome. Is you would buy a pre-made angel food cake, you would shred it up, you would toss it in three different colors of jello, and then get uh, three different kinds of uh, two or three different kinds of fruit, and then pack it in with the with the jello soaked thing and ice cream. You ever had this? I have not. It's good. You pack no. it back into the angel food cake pan, and then you refreeze it, and you unmold it, and it is good. I will rate it as good. All right. So, what do you? What, what have you? Do you want to do user question? User? Do you want to do Patreon questions first, or do you want to do ones you've brought? Let's do the questions first because I feel like people who are who are in for the money ought to get their money's worth. Do you know who likes you a lot? Is Joe Hazen behind you? Joe Hazen is like we hang out. <laughs> we were. It was just last weekend. Joe, Joe's like, get to the questions, you jerk. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So uh, from uh, Hubei uh, Peasant, just came across a section uh, about a book called How to Cook and Eat Chinese in Ken Holmes' Autobiography. And it apparently introduced the term stir-frying to the English lexicon. I'd be much obliged if you could discuss this with Matt on the next Classics in the Field episode. So um, I am aware of, uh, of that assertion, and I don't know anything that says... Uh, otherwise, uh, I did go looking through some older Chinese cookbooks from the early part of the 20th century, which are a relatively scarce item, and I couldn't find any uh, examples of the, you know, to the contrary. Uh, it's always difficult to pr- prove a negative in that case. Um, the book itself is pretty highly regarded by people who are serious students of Chinese cuisine and of uh, Chinese American food history. Um, so it sounds like a credible assertion, um, but it's, it is a technique that has a very specific place in Chinese culinary culture. And, and it's not something that sort of readily applies to what we know from, from a lot of Western cooking. So it makes sense that somebody would have had to come up with a, with a, a hybrid word, to help get the point across. And it seems, you know, the fact that it has stuck yeah. uh, says that it does a job that no alternative phrase could have has well, done so far. Well, the first edition came out in 1945. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they were in, uh, so it was like, a, it was like a, the, the woman who wrote it was, I, th- I think she was teaching English to people uh, in, I think around Cambridge, because that's where the forward from the book is. Uh you know, teaching American officers, uh, I think, Chinese for serving overseas. I think that was one of her jobs. But uh, it's so colored by—I was flipping through it beforehand. It's so colored by the time, and it got published a billion times, right, Um, and stayed in publication even uh, past—I believe past when, you know— um, deeper looks into Chinese cuisine came into vogue after the Nixon uh, administration when he visited China, which is when, you know, there was a huge resurgence in kind of different kinds of uh, Chinese cuisine that had nothing to do with emigration from different places. Anyway, I digress as usual. Uh, but it's got a lot of the hallmarks of old, uh, older, i.e., you know, er- earlier 20th century kind of uh, – like kind of learned writing by women in that she gives a lot of credit to her husband uh, in in the book and then also says something that's very indicative of the way people who were highly educated when they wrote about food would say kind of negative uh, things. So, uh, by the way, Pearl uh, Pearl Buck wrote the intro to one of the later uh, editions. 
Uh, author's note. Uh, uh, this, uh, this is you know, by the author. She says, I'm ashamed to have written this book. First, because I am a doctor and ought to be practicing instead of cooking. Secondly, because I didn't write the book. The way uh, I didn't was like this. You know, I speak little English and write less. So I cooked my dishes in Chinese. My daughter, Rulan, put my Chinese into English. And my husband, finding the English dull, put much of it back into Chinese again. That's when I call a dish mushrooms stir shrimps. Rulan says that that's not English and that it ought to be shrimps fried with mushrooms. But Yen Ren says that if Mr. Smith can go to town in a movie, why can't mushrooms stir shrimps in a dish? So mushrooms stir shrimps. Shrimps you uh, you shall have or what have you. So it's a great you know it's it's interesting you know what I mean uh, and it's got a lot of interesting little nuggets like for instance at the time uh, she says that the most common starch used in China is uh, water caltrop starch which is you know that form of bat nut water chestnut you know that that water chestnut that looks like a bat's like looks like the devil like a devil nut, like water caltrop, uh, as opposed to cornstarch. And she calls out uh, cornstarch, which she calls corn flour, like she's been hanging out with English people. people. <sighs> Worst. English people, wake up. Fla- corn flour is not cornstarch. Wake up. Okay? Corn flour is when you grind corn. Cornstarch is when you wet mill corn and just get the starch. Wake up. Uh, but she calls it corn flour. I'm not going to get mad about it. Um, anyway, so... Uh, so it's a really interesting book. There are, uh, by the way, she. It, it's a. It's also classic in, in the sense that uh, being written in 1945, an extreme hatred of Japanese people. Uh, she she uh, uh, <clears throat> miss. Uh, and she says this again, but this is in the forward, not written by her. Miss uh, Bue Yang Chao uh, had never cooked an egg until she went to Tokyo's Women Medical College, right? This is how, where she became a doctor. This had to be in the 30s, right? Uh, or late 20s, early 30s, 20s, yeah, probably not 30s. Uh, There she found Japanese food so unpalatable that she began to cook her own meals. And by the time she qualified as a doctor, she'd also qualified as a cook. It's like zing, you know what I mean? Like, wow, it's so hardcore, right? Um, So the stir fry uh, that's – oh, but she calls uh, – she does use the uh, Japanese word, ajinomoto, for uh, MSG, but she just calls it taste powder. Which is kind of an interesting, it's attractive, yeah, taste powder. What do you What do you add to that, John? I don't know. It doesn't need much else. Taste powder. Taste powder. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I forget. I don't think I have it here. What the stir frying is a direct translation of, but it's it's hilarious. Like it, that, you know. Uh, uh, and she also, I must not have copied this part out because I thought I did. Uh, she says that it's one of the seven great regrets of the world that Shad has so many bones. Shad, my favorite fish. <laughs> and I was like, you are correct. Wow. It is one of the seven great regrets of the world. Not like death or war. You know what I mean? But Shad. Shad, with all those bones. Speaking across the decades. Yeah. You know what I mean? Someone from the, the 40s coming back and being like, you're right. It does. It sucks. Anyway, I wish I could introduce her to the 80-year-old lady who still uh, fillets the Shad for me in uh, Connecticut. You know? Not in Norwalk, though. Sorry, Jack. Not going to get good shad in Norwalk. Sorry. Uh, no, you're not. No. Although you do have a good aquarium there. It's true. Oh, John, throwing shade on your aquarium. <laughs> wow. He's like, That's I prefer okay. to go up to Mystic when I do my oh, aquarium work. Mystic aquarium is definitely better. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have the Norwalk oh, one, yeah. I guess. But oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. Oh, no, Mystic's uh, better. That's. Yeah, all right. Mystic's a good aquarium. Designed uh, the the new edition there, designed by Caesar Pelli. My, he just died recently. My wife used to work for him. That mm-hmm. was her first architecture job. Yeah, oh. and uh, I went to his ninetieth birthday party. 
oh. which was kind of cool. And he was still with it, still sharp. Interesting, you know, I guess be an architect, keep keep active, keep your brain keep, active. Keeps you focused. Oh, going back to uh, uh, the, the book again, um, I was flipping through it also to see whether, uh, so the, she uses the term defisher for any sort of thing that you add like vinegar or ginger to cover up the aromas of fish. But I was looking for specific techniques that are very in vogue in terms of Chinese cooking now, for instance, velveting prior to stir frying on meat and wasn't able to find anything in my quick kind of perusal. So I don't know whether it wasn't current in her group of cooks or whether that was like, uh, but it'd be interesting to note kind of when that became part of the common lexicon of Chinese cooks when they were writing about it in Chinese, which is something I will never know. You know what I mean? But unless somebody who speaks Chinese tells me. Yeah, it's you're always at a disadvantage uh, trying to understand something uh, in a language you don't speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're never going to be, you're never really going to be part of it. You know what I mean? Uh, <clears throat> all right. Uh, William writes, I enjoy reading cookbooks and cocktail books. I also suffer from a finite amount of bookshelf space. Uh, I now prioritize, uh, prioritize only buying physical copies of books from Kitchen Arts and Letters, of course, that are, and they said that, by the way, and I'm not adding that, uh, that are really special or that, I th or that I think I will reference frequently. The rest I've been buying as ebooks because they don't take up shelf space and I can read them wherever I want. They are also hideous, though. I prefer PDF books to uh, Kindle books. I mean, Kindle's probably better for reading for portability, but in terms of the layout, I, I've said this before on air, the publishers don't necessarily consult the author when they butcher it into a Kindle book. And so, like, I have no control over the layout of my book in Kindle format, and it's a horror show. Anyway, uh, is there any way to purchase cookbook slash cocktail ebooks in such a way that it benefits indie bookstores or more directly authors instead of using something like Kindle? If not, do you think there's any chance that opportunity might exist in the future? Uh, there are a couple of different factors in that. Uh, Kitchen Arts and Letters doesn't sell uh, electronic books uh, in any form mostly because the uh, publisher arrangements are sort of like... They don't allow you to be selective. If you sign up to, to do it, you have to do everything. Uh, we are very much not that kind of bookstore. Um, I am ruthless and always telling myself I'm not sufficiently ruthless in what we choose to carry and not carry. So um, coming on board like that is uh, and doing everything would, would be unattractive for us. Um, there are also, as you have identified, issues with formatting and, um, and electronic books and PDFs have strengths, they have weaknesses. Um, it's, it, some format may come along someday that makes it more satisfying, but you know, I, I own some electronic books. They're almost always simply books of text, nothing with illustrations, because the illustration stuff just starts to go completely wonky um, in ebooks, depending on what type of reader you're using. You know, am I looking at it on my phone, on an iPad, on a specialized device? Um, so I wish I had a better answer for that. But um, that part of the industry sort of favors the big players. I mean, most of the industry favors the big players. But um, and that particular one... I just don't see Kitchen Arts and Letters making an effort to get into it and, and um, adapting ourselves and trying to 
reinvent everything from the ground up in order to make it a satisfying experience. So in my apartment, what we did in our bedroom was we carved out an additional three feet of like basically space where the bed is and in front of the bed like w instead of a instead of a headboard there is a floor to ceiling faced in the opposite direction bookcase so that goes like the width of the bed so that now I have the entire bookshelf wall that is behind the bed and then the bookshelf itself kind of like double width and it is hard to navigate in there but it, you know, almost doubles your book storage space if you don't need that extra room around the foot of your bed. And what do you really need that extra room around the foot of your bed for, uh, to be honest? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do with it? Nothing, right? Uh, other things, um, <clears throat> books, I think, are – it's not fun to have books kind of stored away, and I do have a lot of books stored away. But um, – you know, if you have, if you're a project-based person like like I am, sometimes you can have like a, a book bookshelves that are brought out for projects, almost like your own kind of like current reading library, and that's another way to kind of dense things up because you can put things away in bankers boxes by uh, title or not by title by um, subject or by project, and then you you kind of know where they are. Uh, so there are ways to. Um, there are ways to not uh, inconvenience everyone in the house with your horrible book habit. But um, I have to say I haven't fully solved it because there are books everywhere in my house. But, uh, you know, they stuffed in every cranny books. But you have any other, like, storage solutions? I'm a terrible person <laughs> to ask that question of because I own a bookstore and I have 2,000 square feet of of book storage. So the, the lines between my personal collection and the store's collection are, um, are pretty nebulous. Right. Um, so you're like the president of a university. You get to all the art that's not on display. You can just put in your <laughs> office whenever exactly. you want. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do keep a lot of books at home, uh, but I sort of use the finite space that is allocated for food books there as a kind of limiter and... Things go back to the store. Things come to my house. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not helpful there. Yeah. Uh, also, like, I think a lot comes down to, uh, like, um, I think there's a huge divide between people who cook out, cook, physically cook out of books, like books in the kitchen, versus reading books and then not having the book in the kitchen when you're cooking. I'm pretty much that. I don't hardly ever. I know you're the other way, right? You keep you bring books to the kitchen sometimes. I it depends read. on the book, you know. If it's something that I haven't no experience with, yeah, it's going to be with me uh, in the kitchen. But there are lots of books that I, you know, I'll, I'll read the recipe, put the book back on the shelf, and go in the kitchen and cook. It all depends on my comfort level with a particular type of cooking, um, and I I keep a stack of books at home that are books that are new that I want to spend time with because I. I feel that they could be really something interesting and I want to be able to talk to people very specifically about them. And if I'm going to cook, say, out of the new Nick Sharma vegetable book, I'm not going to, like, close that book and put it on the shelf and then go in the kitchen and do it my way because I need to understand Nick's way. So I will, for a book that I'm working from the first time, it's definitely going to be in the kitchen and used. But lots of other books, it's like, oh, I remember that. I did that before. It was great. It needed more hot sauce or, you know, more butter. Is that usually the answer? More hot sauce, more butter? I mean, those are good answers. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, 
It's a pretty common pair of techniques, yeah. So uh, from uh, Will Robinson, who, um, coincidentally, it's his mom who's the butterball expert who's going to— Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great connection. Yeah. Uh, Wants to say, I've recently been rereading Alfred Russell Wallace's The Melee Arc—do you say art— how do you? I never said archipelago. How do you say it? Archipelago. I would have said archipelago. Archipelago. Yeah. Any other alternative pronunciations here? Nope. Okay. Uh, the Malay archipelago for the first time since college, and I'm wondering if there are any broad modern texts dealing specifically with the culinary biodiversity in the Indonesian region. That's a mouthful of a sentence, Will, to get out without stumbling. Um, looking at uh, Pigafetta's Philippine picnic on your web store, and it will probably have to pick that up. And we'll probably have to pick that up. What do you think? You have the book here. What do you, what I did. Thoughts? I brought it along. It is a fun little book. I This is a piece of scholarship I really admire from a Philippine, uh, Filipino writer named uh, Feliz Santa Maria, who is engaged in sort of a vast exploration of the interaction between the Philippines and that part of the world and, and the New World. She's particularly interested in the connections between... Uh, Manila and Acapulco because of the Spanish galleons going back and forth. This is, you know, obviously a tangential subject. But getting back to Will's question, I'm not aware of um, of anything current that sort of tackles that subject. In part, I think it would be a pretty vast project given the, the biodiversity in that part of the world. And... Um, the books that I can think of that even try to get to burrow into that tend to get into the weeds very quickly, even for more refined areas. So like Virgilio Martinez's books about um, indigenous uh, foods in Peru. Um, he's done two at this point and um, two and a half. Um, and they're all incredibly focused on a limited number of ingredients, even though there's a lot more out there that he could be talking about. It's how he can keep coming back and doing more books. I think Indonesia has got to be just so loaded with uh, possibilities that it would be a multi-volume encyclopedia. And Um, no one's done it yet. Not in English. It could be, you know, it could exist in any number of um, other languages, but um, I haven't seen it in English. All right. All right. Sorry, Will. Uh, Monty says, I really enjoyed... Well, not sorry, but I mean, like, you know, it's not your fault, Matt. (laughs) Well, I mean, somebody may be out there and say, actually, Matt's wrong, and and pipe up and say so. I need to hear that kind of thing, though. I mean, because that's how we make discoveries. We rely on customers coming to us and saying, I can't believe you didn't know about this. Well, we used to do stump Matt. We never could stump you. <laughs> you know? No. I mean, we, we did find um, about a year and a half ago about a 600-page book on Jamaican food, just on Jamaica. Um, and it's a serious ethnological, biological study of all types of finished dishes, of local crop plants, of forage plants, and so forth. And Jamaica versus Indonesia, I mean, the, 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 the scale of things is, is such that I think anybody who really tried to do a serious job would need six, seven books. How's that Jamaican book? It's good. It's strong. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name. The title is simply Jamaican Food. Um, and it's published by the University of Jamaica Press. Um, and um, So good provenance. Good provenance. I mean, yeah. I mean, he sort of passed muster with 
with people who who would have been there knowing this all the time. It wasn't like it came from the University of Wyoming press, which might have taken the subject very seriously, but no less offense, likely no to offense have, Wyoming, no yeah, offense. Less likely to have somebody on staff with uh, with the knowledge. So um, yeah, I was really impressed. Um, my shout out to my colleague Laura Jackson, who found the book and said, "God, we have to have this." Nice. All right. Uh, Monty writes in, I really enjoyed the book, All the Tea in China. Who wrote that again? That was, uh, it's called, it's not, that's not the full title, right? All the tea in, it's all the tea in China, blah, blah, blah. Like, I can think of like three How England Stole the World's Famous Drink and Change History by Sarah Rose. Yes. All right. Uh, Let's assume that that's the one. Uh, That was, when was that? That was, let's see. I forget. 2010? Yeah. Uh, about the history of tea. Uh, any other similar uh, books about spice, spices and such? I brought my uh, old school uh, Frederick uh, Rosengarten just because I'll push those books whenever I can, especially the Nuts book. The Nuts book is uh, – there is nothing that comes close to, to rivaling that book still after, okay. what, 35 years? I mean just – 40 years? Just the description of people getting killed by uh, Brazil nuts falling out of trees <laughs> is worth the price of admission. Like, you know, he's like, every year some people die from nuts falling out of trees from like 100 feet in the air and killing them when it hits them on the head. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> it's a brutal world. Yeah. For not, for not a great nut. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Brazil nuts, fine. Wait, Joe, are you the one that loves Brazil nuts? You're the Brazil nut freak, right? No, someone's a Brazil nut freak, but I mean, it's not the best nut, right? I mean, it's a big nut. Does anyone think Brazil nuts are the best nut? Anyone? Was uh, it not even top ten? No, well, top ten. I uh, <laughs> yeah, that's hardcore. Well, ten, ten's pretty wide. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, I would say macadamia better than Brazil for a high fat nut that's texture based. If you're going to go for a high fat texture based nut that's not a flavor based nut, macadamia. Right, I mean, is yeah, it, you would think. I mean, that's a good textured nut, the macadamia. Yeah, yeah, not the, my, not my top flavor nut, but you know, agreed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like what else? I mean, pistachio is great. Yeah. Pecan, great. Hickory, great. Walnut, great. So how many have we done there? Like then cashew, great. Uh, you know, then almonds. Almonds can be great. Love love a good almond. Almond is. A really great mm-hmm. cooking nut. Almonds are fantastic. And also, it's very diverse, almond. Uh, what else you got, Quinn? Yep. Give me some more nuts. We got to get to 10. Good. What? Hazelnut? Oh, yes. What's the difference between a hazelnut yeah. and a filbert? Is there a difference between a hazelnut and a filbert? When I was growing up in I Oregon, they, they said no. But they said no? Yeah. Yeah. It was just a matter of nomenclature. Yeah, no one in America says filbert. Am I right? Oregonians say filbert. Really? Yeah, everybody there grew... The people I know who had orchards grew filberts. Wow. That may have changed. I Did mean, they grow filberts but sell hazelnuts? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I can remember driving past the orchards. I they all said filberts. That's nobody a, ever a said nobody ever said we the we uh, raise hazelnuts. That's when you get the Bazzini can of nuts, like the ten pound can, they uh-huh. say filberts on the side. Really? The ingredient list, yeah. Mm. They're uh as far as New York City nut vendors go, they're old old school. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Big um, company. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And guess what didn't make this Are list? Are we counting peanuts? No. Yes, but no. I mean, obviously they're eating like a nut, but clearly not a nut, but also amazing and diverse. Wait, aren't, aren't walnuts or pecans also not nuts? No, they're both nuts. What do you mean? They're both I nuts. I don't think there's a botanical definition of Although nuts. Although they're from a droop. 
What are those from a group? No, they're, uh, they're nuts. They're nuts. Pretty sure. Someone someone check me on it. Those are nuts. Uh, uh, peanuts grow under the ground, not a nut. You know what I mean? Like, a nut, mm. you know, ground nuts. You know what I mean? These ground nuts. Uh, <laughs> well, nuts, nuts are like spices. It's sort of a, you know, you call something that because you describe the way it gets used. Right. Um, but the, I, I thought this was a really interesting question because there is a new book called The History and Natural History of Spices by a, a British geologist, of all things, uh, named Ian Campbell. It's just come out in the last two months from something called The History Press, which is a small British publisher. Um, he is an organizational um, compulsive, which actually makes... Um, access to the book, uh, really interesting. He has, the book is full of charts about what do we know about the first uses of this? When did we, you know, when is the earliest sign of the spice trade? Um, and again and again, as you flip through the book, you can see these tables in which he's leading you off into all kinds of different research rabbit holes. Uh, and his citations are strong. He's done a really good job of, of presenting you with the information to go even deeper. But he's um, systematic in his approach to families of spices, those which come from, say, the ginger family. Um, and um, he, while he's not the world's most compelling pro stylist, he's also <laughs> um, a clear, understandable writer. He's not... Um, it's not one of those cases where someone's enthusiasm for the subject leads them to just sort of tumble on and on and on. Uh, he can write a good, clear, declarative sentence and pair it well with the next one. Um, and I'm, I'm really impressed with the book. It's, it's on my table for further indulgence. So, well, not the snappiest, also not long-winded. Yeah. No, he's, he, he, he understands how to get a point across in a way that is... There are people who, who's writing, you become very conscious of them as a writer. He's not that person. He is a, you know, one sentence follows the other in a clear and logical order that makes it easy to read. You're, you're not indulging in flights of lyrical fancy. Um, and spice is a subject that could easily lend itself to that. Oh, because, sure. Um, uh, a lot of other people have been led down that path, and, and as a writer, you might also be tempted to do that. He resists it, and I think he, it allows him to convey a great deal more information. Here's something. <clears throat> so uh, I'm just a asking. So when you read things, descriptions of flavors, and spices made me think of this. Like, what the, what the heck are you supposed to do as a writer? I just tasted, like... Um, recently 30 different infusions right for you know because i'm you know redoing and uh after a while i'm like it just tastes like friggin infused stuff it tastes like roots i mean like i can't think of new things to say like what are you supposed to do as like a, a like how am i supposed to explain to you what valerian tastes like you know what i mean like oh, i'll taste one that i'm really familiar with i'm like oh you know what this tastes like this tastes like hibiscus you know what i mean like, because it's so crappy just to say, well, it's bright and acidic, kind of red. You know what I mean? Like, what are you supposed to do? Well, I think everybody's ability to describe flavors depends on something of a common frame of reference. I mean, if you, 
you're writing for somebody who hasn't already tasted a number of things, it's really difficult to say, I mean, how do you describe cinnamon to somebody who has never had an encounter with with much in the way of spices at all. Somebody whose entire palate is grown up, say, in a cuisine that is herbally focused, something right. like Just a spice is, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's tough sledding. So, I mean, you can't not resort to comparisons. Right. You can't, and also, like, at a certain point, yeah, at a certain point, it's, it's difficult, right? I mean, certain things also, like, are very clear but also very hard to describe. How do you describe gentian? You know what I mean? Like d- dirty, we, like there's a, a gentian, like a dusty, there's a gentian flavor. How do I describe gentian? If you don't know what it tastes like, how the hell am I going to tell you what it tastes like? You know what I mean? Well, wine writers come across that same thing too. And sometimes I think they... But isn't that why people hate wine writers? They overdo it is what I was driving at. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like I have very rarely detected all the flavors in a in some glasses of wine that are, that are attributed to it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm content to believe that maybe my palate is simply not um, developed enough to, to, spec- to detect all those things. But I also think that it's just they're probably some, some, some poor soul on a deadline. It's like, okay, I have to write 15 more of these, and no one's going to know the difference right. if I say it tastes like civet. <laughs> yeah, that's because kinda, who's tasted civet? Right. That's kind of what I'm re- being reduced to on these things, but I don't want to do that because I hate that. You know what I mean? I don't, like, I, I, if something tastes like civet to me, I'm going to tell you. Like, my favorite used to be, this tastes like giant water bug essence. You know what I mean? Not real giant water bug because I'm not an expert. I'm just an expert in the artificial giant water bug essence that you buy at the local mart. You know what I mean? But, anywho. Uh, all right, but in the remaining 14 minutes that we have left before we need to talk turkey, uh, what do you, what did you bring? Okay, um, I brought a variety of classics today. Uh, one of them I think we'll start with is the Old Waldorf Astoria Bar Book by Albert S. Crockett. Uh, Crockett was a journalist who sort of eased his way into being um, a press man for the old Waldorf uh, Astoria Hotel. And um, this is a book that was published just after the end of Prohibition. Um, He had done an earlier version during Prohibition that was a collection of uh, sort of recipes for things that people couldn't make. But in this case, uh, once it was legal to actually make cocktails again... Uh, he f- fleshed it out with more stories about people who were patrons of the hotel and of the bar. Um, and it's a interesting book because it's part of an effort to restore in the United States the idea of cocktail making as a serious craft. It's been 13 years since people could make a living publicly. Making cocktails and yeah, at uh, least right, nineteen nineteen to thirty three. Yeah, fourteen years. So, it's um, there's been a real fall off, and he is in part trying to uh, reinvigorate the idea that that there's an art here that needs to be picked up and practiced. Um, it's an interesting book because the recipes themselves would are very surprising to somebody who's used to contemporary American cocktail recipes. Uh, some ingredients like vermouth predominate in a way that they're 
Um, they're just not that common now. So the sort of the current joke that, uh, you know, if you, you like a martini, you sort of weigh the, the vermouth in the direction of the glass and then just drink the gin. Some of these cocktails are, are 50% vermouth. Right. Well, you know, uh, in the intro, he, you know, he started, I guess, either working for them or being a patron in, you know, what was known as the gay 90s, right, which was only 30 years or so after the original bar manuals were being written. They're all extremely vermouth heavy, right? Um, yeah. So I didn't get a chance to look through it, but like uh, – I think also this is the one where everything, like a lot of things, have like a dash of absinthe and 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 stuff like this. I'd be curious to go back and look at the recipes. A lot of those super vermouth heavy recipes I really enjoy. So um, I think I called you or we discussed at some point some of the early kind of maybe I was talking about it with Wonderich. Some of the early bar compendiums that were just written by an editorial team. Um, I forget the name name of them, but. Uh, I was making a bunch of the early Manhattan variants that are very heavily vermouthed, and I kind of like them a lot. They're kind of good, yeah. Uh, but so one thing, a question I have about this, and as you say, I think this was kind of the first or the most famous anyway of these kind of lost art things that became the driving force behind the cocktail renaissance in the early 2000s in, you know, at least in the United States, in New York at least. Um this narrative that something is lost and could not be regained but did exist in other places. And I wonder how many other people before this were pushing that narrative or whether this was the kind of beginning of that narrative, which still is the dominant narrative today, interestingly, or at least 15 years ago. Do you know of any other people that were pushing that narrative that hard? Um, I don't, in part because I think a lot of the other books were not as narratively driven right. as this one. I mean, here, uh, what are we... He's got the first 20, 30 pages of this book are background, and he often stops and diverts himself with stories about people. So he he makes that point and returns to it uh, in numerous places through the book. And I think part of also what he's doing, because let's be honest, he was a press man for the old Waldorf Astoria, is putting forth the idea that something magical is is being recreated at the old Waldorf Astoria. Exactly. And, it's in, you know, it, snappy writing. He has snap, snap, snappy writing. Yes. Good writing. Um, He's a great storyteller. Yeah. You know, like, <clears throat> anytime someone pines over something lost, it makes me a little bit nervous. You know what I mean? Anytime somebody hates the current because they're pining for something lost, right, I'm sure that often it's true. But, you know, given what people typically pine for, as things that are lost all throughout the different periods of my own actual life, things I've seen. Like, so in the 80s, people pining for things that were lost. In the 90s, people pining. 2000s, you know, you know, we all know. Anyway, my point being that it's interesting that this narrative of something lost because of prohibition, because of this kind of law, I think, never got reevaluated as something – in other words – his opinion was never reevaluated as something that needed to be reevaluated. Someone's saying, no, actually, you know, the drinks in the late 30s in, in, uh, in America were good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, because everybody thinks post-war American drinks sucked. You know what I mean? So I think it all kind of gets lumped in. It's like prohibition was over and we didn't get good again with the exception of certain kind of tropical drink recipes until, you know, the 2000s, which is uh, – I don't know. It's, it's interesting, right, that, that there hasn't been a critical reassessment of that. Well, I mean, you always have to ask who's telling the story. Uh, you know, is it somebody who's gatekeeping? Like, I have knowledge that 
was entrusted to me through some secret connection I have to pe someone who was there? Uh, is it somebody who's, say, I have knowledge and now I'm sharing it with you and therefore you should regard me as an authority? I mean, all of those things are factors in any book that you're getting, no matter what the subject matter is. Um, How much is this worth, by the way, the original? A lot? This is an expensive book. Um, there are reprints around. Uh, they're not beautiful pieces of reprint. You could probably pick one up for less than $20. I looked to see if Cocktail Kingdom has this. They don't. Hmm. Um, they might want to think about that because they do good reprints. But 33 is not public domain yet, is it? I have to check. It's on the cusp. Yeah. But this is a first edition from 1934, and it's $1,350. Oh! And... This is one has was actually rebound before we got it. So a copy that was not rebound uh, would probably be worth more. That was rebound? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you can And what relationship see uh, that it's been What relationship yeah. does this have to the 2016 Waldorf Astoria book that came out again is any of the original in the new one or no? I don't think so. I think that's all. All right, and in the, century material. in the in the small amount of time we have left, <clears throat> you wanted to uh, call out some other books, but we're going to have to, I think, do them quickly. What, what other books did you want to uh, call out? Uh, a few things worth paying attention to if you see come across them in the world. Pomp and Sustenance by Mary Taylor Sametti, uh, which is uh, a book about the history of Sicilian food. It starts with Homer and goes on. Ooh. Um, she is a trained historian. She's also a really... Uh, gifted writer, and um, she makes a great case. This, this book has also simply been called Sicilian Food in some formats. It's had several different editions. Still in, still in print? It is, but not easy to get because it's a small publisher with weak distribution. But maybe maybe I can find it at a store like Kitchen Arts and Letters? Kitchen Arts and Letters has it. I pulled this off the shelf today on my way here. And it's, it's really worth reading, you're saying? It's a great book. It is a really wonderful piece of scholarship, and it's the kind of thing that will make you wish you had a similar book for other parts of it. For the holidays, maybe people should think into uh, getting this book, because it's, it's, I haven't read it. I don't know it. Really? You didn't yeah, know? No. Oh, I didn't think I could surprise you with yeah. that. Um, it's, a, it's a really smart book. She's done some other writing about Sicilian food as well. There's a book called On Persephone's Island, also by her, that is in print from Knopf uh, in a vintage paperback book. That is a year of living in Sicily and going through the harvests and the festivals and things like that. So no recipes, but very much contemporary Sicilian culture, but still um, a lot of historical context. Yeah, I awesome. really, really pay attention to anything she writes. Joe, you're going to want to check this one out, huh? Uh, all right, what else? What if we got? I got to hurry. Flavors of the Riviera by Ooh. Coleman Andrews. This is a book about the stretch between Nice and the Tuscan border. So a lot of Liguria, but also some some French. I mean, control of that area switched back and forth between different countries for a long time. So he's treating it as a more of a unit, um, not sort of saying, oh, well, the French do it this way and the Italians do it this way, because it doesn't make sense in that part of the world. This book came out... Uh, mid-90s, uh, I think very strong. It's still a tough part of the world to find books out. There's a little bit more contemporary writing about Liguria, but Coleman has always had a great appreciation for history, and it's a rich part of this book. So contrasted super quickly with, like, for instance, a Mediterranean feast, which treats the entire Mediterranean, including North Africa and, you know, Anatolia and all this as kind of one unit. Like, it seems like no one really reads that one anymore, right? Uh, what was it called? Uh, Clifford? Clifford Wright. Wright. Yeah. That's, a, that's an amazing book. It is big and heavy, and I think it intimidates people sometimes because of its size. And it's got an, he's got an edge. 
verb like writing. He like I leave my memory. It's been huh. twenty years since I've read it. It's been twenty years since I've read it. Doesn't come to me in my memory that way. Um, I mean, I think that was in a very impressive piece of of scholarship. It's a great book. Um, yeah. And you know, and the fact that so much united, I. Uh, I think it was a strong piece of scholarship, but it was just a little too big, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, and at the time, people didn't want heavy books. People the still mentally, like heavy. mentally heavy books. People still resist it. Yeah. You know, this we, I think we his, speak to an audience. I think if that book different. came out today, it would have a wider readership, though. Not, I mean, if it was shorter but the same subject, I think it would have a wider readership. I don't know. I, I sometimes despair about books that are um, that ask people to. Uh, Sort of blur lines. Yeah. All right. And super quick, the last one, because this one, uh, you know, she's still alive, which I didn't even know. I Hear America Cooking, Betty Vassell. This looks at six specifically American regional cuisines, um, basically New Mexico. There's also the, the, the Delta South. There is the rest of the South. There's New England. There's the Midwest Great Lakes. And then there's the Pacific Northwest. So 2023 eyes, 26 years later after this was written, does it still hold together or is it problematic? Have you looked at it recently? Uh, I looked at it uh, very recently. And I think in some ways it's um, it's anticipating things that haven't happened yet. Um, she was sort of hoping that certain things would gel. She was, her argument about some of these places having really distinctive cuisines was was pretty forward-thinking, um, but particularly her Pacific Northwest sort of ecotopia cuisine point of view, I don't think it's. I don't think it took. No, oh, cool. Now, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. And st- uh, if you can, it'd be awesome to stick around because we're gonna talk turkey for the <laughs> last uh, last half hour. But thanks for these these books, and I really, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out that pop and, and sustenance. How much how much does that one go for on on the website? Can we get a Patreon discount on that one? I I have to set that up. Let me uh, let me go back to the store and and check stock. It's been short, but okay, um, we'll work on right. it. Maybe for next week. Next week? Yeah, all I'll right. get you the news. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, all right. So <clears throat> we will be uh, starting up in just a minute with Barbara Robinson from Butterball. That's a good word. Butterball. first holiday turkey not a word if it's dry it's her first turkey it won't be juicy what they don't know is marion's first turkey is america's first turkey butterball it's always juicy because it's specially deep basted so every slice is moist and tender Mm, juicy turkey marion i knew it would be after all it's butterball also available fresh we are beatrice we're back. Guess what about the turkey? It won't be juicy. I love that. Uh, we're joined with super special guest uh, Barbara Robinson from the Butterball Turkey Talk Line. How you doing? Hi, Dave. 
It is uh, great. How are you? Fantastic. It's uh, it's an honor to have uh, have you on official. There's a couple of people that we've had on where I'm like super excited. Like we had on the person who invented uh, Fudgy the Whale and uh, that, you know, so like someone who's yeah that was amazing and so, but like actually talking to uh so you're 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 a supervisor at kind of like world turkey headquarters at thanksgiving time right how do you get that absolutely, job absolutely yes how do you how do you get well, that job all all of us here are foodies we're like like you and your listeners we all love to cook we all love to research cooking we all have education in nutrition and foods um, we have dietitians and food scientists um, we have chefs who work here we have college instructors um, all of us uh, let's see dining directors all of us have a true interest and in the education in foods but we do go through rigorous training uh, all about turkeys of course and uh, I'm one of the trainers now I'm a supervisor nice. I've been here for 16 years all right so don't answer I'm gonna ask you I'm gonna ask you a bunch of things and please sure. do not answer them if you're not allowed to answer them or if I ask a bad question <laughs> and by the way anyone that happens to be listening live on the patreon call in to 917-410-1507 that's 917-410-1507 for your personal butterball turkey talk um all right, so how often when you're supervising, are you, like, listening to other people answering questions? You're like, no, no, that's wrong. <laughs> like, does that happen a lot? Do you cut in? Do you, like, stop people when they're saying stuff that you disagree with or, or what? Well, um, we, as I mentioned, we do a lot of trainings. Uh, okay, I do listen to some of our turkey experts answering calls. I can, of course, only hear one side of the calls. But um, I will periodically just hear something I think, that's not quite right. So <laughs> I, I will, yeah, <laughs> I will mention to them the way they were trained and really the, the butterball way. You know, there are a lot of ways to cook turkeys, of course, a lot of ways, uh, a lot of different methods of cooking, but we do have the, the butterball methods that we do recommend because we're all about food safety here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things I was going to ask is, uh, what's the temperature that you guys uh, recommend that you have to get to in the, in the thigh? Okay, we recommend 180 degrees in the thigh, 170 degrees in the breast area, That's rough, and 165 yeah. in the stuffing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and you guys are okay with stuffing? Do you yes, prefer? Yes. To, you, uh, yeah. All right. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What do you think? Like, so, like, uh, do you recommend? Like, I do like a hot stuff when I'm going to stuff so that I don't like. So it's already up to up to temp. But how do you guys? Uh, how do you guys guarantee food safety on a stuffed bird? Is it just because they're, you don't recommend doing it on the giant birds? I notice you guys mainly recommend smaller size turkeys, like sub-22, right? Um, I would say that's a more common size, yes. And if the turkey is very large, we would not recommend that you stuff it. But people, stuffing is very popular, and people do like to stuff their turkeys if they like a moisture stuffing because of all of those juices from the bird that go into the stuffing. But you're very wise to, to put a warm stuffing in there. That is why we recommend 165 degrees in the stuffing. We recommend that people do take the temperature of the stuffing. Yeah. Now, again, don't answer this, but at home, do you really cook it that high? <laughs> do you really take it to that temperature? You don't have to answer. Um, 
you don't, you don't, you <laughs> of do not, course you, I do. You, Actually, I prefer uh, the crispy stuffing, so I'll generally put it in a casserole on the side. Yeah, yeah. I do both. Personally. I do both. Do you, do, do you yeah. cover yeah. it first and then uncover it to crisp up the top? Actually, the, the butterball method is two-thirds of the way through cooking time. So if you're cooking your turkey for three plus or minus three hours, after two hours, we would say place a tent of foil, uh, which, of course, isn't wrapping the, the turkey in foil. It's just placing a, a sheet of foil that is uh, creased down the center and just place that so that the breast area and the thighs don't get overbrowned or overcooked. Yeah, and so we say at the end. So something. Oh no, but I meant on the stuffing though. When you do your stuffing in the casserole, I always oh. cover it for. I always cover it for the first like almost until the end, and then crisp it up just at the last. We're talking turkey, not stuffing anyway. I th- <laughs> what I thought was interesting sounds delicious. Yeah, I thought it was interesting is that you guys recommend putting a couple quarter onions underneath the turkey on the tray as a way to lift it off, presumably, I guess, to get the bottom browner, like kind of as a natural kind of lift. Is that what it's for? Um, Yes, and for flavoring, too. We actually recommend that you cook your turkey in an open roasting pan on a rack. But if someone doesn't have a rack, then we recommend a coil of foil, which is yeah, and you probably know what that is. They make a snake and then just curl it into a crown shape and place that under your turkey. But, of course, onions, carrots, celery can all be used as a rack for your turkey. And that gives the drippings a, a wonderful flavor, of course, and the house smells wonderful, too. I read in uh, an interview you gave that there is a microwave technique that you say is actually delicious, but you also say it's quite complicated. Care to go into it? First of all, what size turkey can I do using the method? All right. you Doing the microwave cook, you need to have a turkey that's 12 pounds, pounds or under. And we actually had, you probably, I'm not sure if I had said that, um, we had a There was a trend going on where all these college students told their moms they were going to cook in the, they were going to cook their holiday turkey in the microwaves. And the moms were crazy about it. They were all calling us. But um, it is a complicated method. Uh, I just, I have it in front of me. It's where you have to use 30% power for 20 to 26 minutes per pound, dividing that time into four intervals. So, um, it's, it does take a long time. You can't leave the kitchen when you're cooking in a microwave, and you need to flip the bird and, and turn it if you don't have the turntable in your microwave. So it is a complicated method, but uh, it, it actually produces a delicious turkey. And some people won't have a, a, you know, the actual oven. They'll only have a microwave if they're um, in college or in a hotel or you know, just in a small apartment. So it can be done. I like that uh, it's Thanksgiving. I'm in a hotel with a kitchenette microwave. I'm like, I got to cook a turkey. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I somehow go to like a store. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's those holiday traditions. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, how how long does it take at the 30% power and all the flipping and and how many many hours does it take of tending your microwave to get the turkey to come out? It's actually pretty quick, depending on the size of your turkey. It takes about an hour and a half to two hours, Uh but very hands-on, as I said. Uh, It's pretty quick. 
Well, I mean, and it's a smaller turkey. I, you know, I guess if you only have a microwave, you're not making a lot of sides anyway, right? Because you don't, you know, you have nothing else. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. So, do do you guys have to like uh, for safety reasons, like tell people not to deep fry their turkeys or what? Oh no, uh, deep frying a turkey is a really popular method, especially in the South, because of course. I'm in the Chicagoland area, and we it's cold here, and so um, generally people will deep fry outside using their um, using their fryer. But um, it's very popular. We do have a lot of rules, and let me just mention here for your listeners: you can call one eight hundred Butterball, and we will answer all your turkey questions, or you can text us at eight four four eight seven seven three four five six, and we have. Literally all the answers. We have our our knowledge base digital binder where we can give you any kind of information that you would need. But um, yeah, the deep frying it's it's a very popular method. We just say, of course, make sure your turkey is totally thawed, and then you need to pat 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 it dry, totally dry that turkey. But sure, it, it's actually great results. Yeah, you know the fir- the first time I did it uh, years and years and years ago. Uh, the problem I had was uh, it was so cold that day where I was. It was in New York State, you know, you know, Westchester, just north of New York City. It was so cold that the propane tank wasn't delivering uh, gas enough to, to, to do anything. So I went into the garage and over-drilled the orifice so that I could get enough gas out of it. And I don't know what I did. But I finally got so much flame coming out of that thing. It was ripping. And when I stuck the turkey in, I had, like, there was a through cap. You know how, like, most of the time turkeys, you can't actually, you can't wear it like a sleeve. You know what I mean? You, most of the time. You, right. But, right. So this one, you could wear it like a sleeve. You could, you, could, you could put it through your hand and wave it over your head with your fist, you know, with your, your, <laughs> oh, your fist through one and out the other. <laughs> and it created a Versailles-like fountain of oil because of the convection that could go through the turkey and it 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 erupted from the fryer uh um you know pot and then sprayed oil all over the lawn and completely obl- turkey delicious completely obliterated <laughs> completely obliterated the uh the lawn in that area so that ruined thanksgiving for my stepfather and then I, you know, I thought I would never fry another turkey again at their house. I mean, I've done it many times, even in commercial deep fryers, but um, which you know are oriented the other way, so easier. But I did it. He, my mom was like, "Let's fry the turkey again." I was like, "What are you nuts? I killed the thing." She's like, "No, you're gonna do it. You're gonna do it on the patio." But then oil got on the flagstone, and it was again freezing. And he was out there hosing down the flagstone like for all of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving completely ruined twice that way. But no fires. No fires. You guys, oh, good, might, good. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say now, you, you, you need to mention to your listeners these. These are not recommended. We we don't recommend the the fountain of Versailles yeah, yeah. coming out of your out of your fryer. Um, you know, we're we're all about food safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, not just food safety for yeah, food safety like uh, your house not burning down. I mean, people, uh, an, an, <laughs> a non-zero number of people's house burned down by frying their turkeys outside, right? Uh, you know that one I've I've not heard, yeah. but uh, you know you see the videos online. It it makes it a little makes you cautious. Yeah. All right. So we have a question for you. Uh, in Australia, we don't do Thanksgiving. But oh, by the way, I have a question. 
uh, I'm going to ask this just at the outset. Do you ask people where they got their turkey or whether it's a butterball when they call in? Or can people with non-brand turkeys ask you questions if they if they don't say what brand it is? What How often does it happen that someone's like, oh, it's not a butterball. Can I still ask you a question? Does that come up or not? Sure, sure. People ask that a lot. Or they'll talk about the pop-up timer, yeah. which Butterball does not have. Yeah. So when they start talking about that, we know right away that it's uh, the the truth comes out. But that's okay. <laughs> we help everyone. We have all kinds of we have recipes for mashed potatoes and stuffing and the side dishes at Butterball.com. So we help everyone. We we are we're the the turkey helpline. Yeah. We're the, yeah, the, the nine one one for for turkey problems. The pop-up timer is a horror show, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's too late. That's what the timer says. <laughs> too late. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, uh, in Australia, we don't do Thanksgiving, but for whatever reason, uh, we basically just steal all the Thanksgiving recipe off the Yanks. That would be us. And serve it for Christmas. In the spirit of that last year, uh, I did uh, my, ma- my mom. Uh, uh, my mom's Parker House roll served it with uh, duck riettes and cornichon. As the only other thing uh, better than a bun overloaded with butter is a shredded duck overloaded with duck fat. It wasn't good. It was good. Uh, Continuing in the spirit of stealing, uh, turkey help, brine, don't brine, hipster brine, which they call dry brine, which is, by the way, that's just salting. That's salting. Dry brining is salting. Uh, yeah, uh, cooking a crown separate to the legs, I guess, you know, or I guess breaking it apart. Uh, I'll, I'll add spatchcocking to that. Uh, am I that fancy? Probably not. Uh, it's usually about 40 degrees Celsius here. That's hot as heck on Christmas Day, I guess, because they're flipped through us. So not everything translates well, but I love a new idea. You know, if they're not, if they're not American and they don't need to serve the bird presented as a whole bird, I mean, don't you think spatchcocking is a good way to go or what? What, what, do you, what would you say? What would Butterball say to this Australian? Sure. Well, there are a lot of ways of cooking a turkey, and spatchcocking is a great method because it cooks so much faster once you've got your turkey splayed out. Um, but uh, it's, when you talked about brining, um, the, the Butterball turkey, we, we pre-based our, uh, the breast area so that it does have a salt solution in it. It's not necessary, but you certainly can. You can, you can brine your turkey. There's so many. There's no right or wrong ways to cook your turkey. Those are, they're all good methods. Now, doesn't Butterball, the name Butterball, didn't they used to, like, in, like inject, like, under the skin some sort of fat? That's not in the brine that's in the breast, though, right? I'm sorry, underneath the, it wasn't there, some, didn't it, when I was a kid, or did it just seem that way? Because I can't remember. Oh, I'm afraid it just seemed that way, yeah. yeah. We never actually used butter in the recipe, but it, it looked like a Butterball, so it was all about the look. Mm-hmm. And that's how the name came about. Yeah, Nastasia. I think she had to leave for a minute. Hopefully she's back because I have a question. No, I'm here. I'm back. Oh, yeah. So I have a question on Nastasia's behalf. And so Nastasia, every year we joke that, you know, that her mom is going to cook the turkey until it sounds hollow when wrapped like a loaf of bread. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, how can, is there any way that Nastasia can, do you have like advice for comfortably telling people not to overcook uh, a turkey? Like, is there any sort of like therapy advice that you give to people to, so that they can like, you know, broach this subject without causing family disputes? 
You know, we we do a lot of therapy here. You'd be amazed. We <laughs> we have 50 turkey experts who are all very compassionate and very helpful. Um, you know, that's why we say, and you you love it too, I'm sure, the, that's why we say use a thermometer. We say if you take the temperature of your turkey, look for certain temperatures, it, it's fine. We We often get people who will call and say, well, I cooked it to 170 degrees, and then I put it in for an extra half an hour just to be sure. <sighs> so, yeah. to be sure of Even what? Though, I know, I know. It's uh, you know, in the when we were all very young, the turkeys were very large, and they were not bred to be to have the all that breast meat and to be tender. So people did cook their turkeys for a long time, and they basted them. Um, so. Times have changed, and uh, you know we've uh, we try to encourage people to to just take the temperature of the bird and uh, and go with that. Now, how much of a rise am I going to get though? So, if like I, I know it, a lot depends on a lot, right? So, but with your what's your recommended temperature for the for the main through three fifty something like this? We recommend three hundred and twenty five degrees. Okay, so for cooking, up. At, yeah. At three twenty five, if you pull something at one seventy, how much of a rise am I going to get on the rest? You know, not much. Uh, poultry is is different from beef. With beef, you know, you have that solid chunk of muscle, and poultry is not like that. So it may be two or three degrees, but that's about it. Oh, it, really? There's not a lot of we we don't allow for a lot, any rise. Yeah. So on the reverse now. Even even with a full rest, you're saying, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes. Yeah. And do you guys recommend the the rest? Like you know, like we always would. The problem with the rest, especially when it's like tented to not get, uh, is it steams the skin out, which is always kind of unfortunate, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah. so, so you we guys do carve right away. The rest. Yeah. How long? Yeah. No, we do. We say fifteen to twenty minutes because if you, as you know, because I know you're you're a big foodie. Um, when you start to carve a, a turkey right away or a poultry, um, the, the juices come right out. But once it sets for 15 or 20 minutes, then the, the juices will remain in, in the cells there. Well, what about the problem of, of keeping the skin crispy with the rest? Do you, like, do you have some sort of like special like magic trick to like rest <laughs> it, have it not be cold, but keep the skin crispy? Because... You, you get my problem here, right? Like you keep it, yeah. you put an aluminum foil over so that it radiates very little heat. And then, you know, it's sitting there and the skin is not, you pull it out and it's like tack, tack, tack and sounds great. The skin's crispy. And then when you get it, it's not crispy anymore. Yeah, I, 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 I see what you're saying. We do not have a cure for that. I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I would say if you really like that skin to remove the foil, um, yeah. And that that would keep your skin intact. You might lose, but but you know, by the time you carve the whole turkey, a bit of time has passed, so it won't be steamy hot anyway. Yeah, my family like people just rip the skin off and eat it, and then the meat gets <laughs> carved in. Or like you just cook a whole se- separate bird for the skin. How about you pull it when it's done, rest it, or pull it maybe a little before, rest it for you know, and then just like. Blast it in like in like hyper convection in like air fry mode just to recrisp that skin on the way out. You think that's gonna help or no? Like like five minutes, like ten uh, minutes of like yeah. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. I I I would hesitate only because I would be afraid you're going to continue to cook your turkey yeah. if you place it back in your oven. Um, you, you know, uh, 
Whatever works for you, Dave. Yeah. Now, also, I noticed that one of the uh, things that you guys uh, tout on the website is the uh, the skin cut leg self tuck sitch, right? So the legs are self tucked in a in a butterball yes. turkey. Yes. Right. You don't. So butterball doesn't believe in the free leg. I'm a free leg man. You guys, uh, you, you know, you guys uh, like a, like the old school tuck, or is that for visual, or do you guys actually think that it cooks better with the legs drawn in around the bird like that? Um, I don't know if it cooks better. It certainly looks nicer. Yeah. Um. Because when, when you yeah. tuck the leg. I mean, I pull my meat. Obviously, before you guys recommend that I pull the meat, and if I have it tucked, it get it has that dreaded, it has that dreaded like pink stuff down by the uh, whatever joint this is that I'm pointing at, like shoulder, shoulder. yeah, you know, or whatever the thigh, whatever yeah, like hip, the hip, hips, yeah. the right, hips, right. yeah, and yep, uh, nobody like nobody likes that. Everyone hates that. You know what right, I mean? Right. So like, well, uh, you know, that's that's why we tell you to bring it up to temperature. That's why we say 180 degrees on the thigh. I just can't. I just can't. It's not. It's not in me. I can't do it. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's just like my my body like revolts against it. Uh, we, we've actually we've actually found that the the texture of the meat when you bring it up to one eighty is 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 more palatable. All right. Let me ask you this though. What are you like? What are the ingredients in the in the brine, are there phosphates in the salt that ha- help it keep moisture at those temperatures so that, like, as opposed to a normal, just a straight salt brine that, like, someone at home might do, like, is it a more effective brine that's in the butterball that allows it to stay, uh, you know, moist at those temperatures as opposed to, you know, like a regular salting? Um, well, of course, the ingredients are proprietary, mm-hmm. so I'm my lips are sealed, uh-huh. but... Um, I can't really go there, but um, the the reason that we do the basting solution is because these turkeys are very cold. You know, we freeze them. Either they're frozen or the fresh turkeys, which are kept at 23, 26 degrees. So because of that, because of that ice, um, that helps them to stay moist as they're as they're thawing. So um, you know, I I would say you know I I really don't know. I, I can't really say I know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what everyone's going to want to know, what are the biggest horror stories, right, John? Is there, is everyone wants yes, to know that. That's what we want. Just give us some horror stories, right? So, like, you okay. know, everyone's going to make the mistakes they're going to make, but give us the worst. Okay, um, the worst. Or whatever. Just give us mm-hmm. some interesting mm-hmm. horror horror shows. <laughs> okay. Um, there are many heartwarming and funny stories. Um, my, my current favorite one is where um, a young man was having his his new girlfriend's parents over for dinner, and he was he hadn't met the parents yet, so he was preparing the turkey and he placed the turkey in the oven, and he pushed oven clean instead of oven bake. Yeah. And the oven, of course, locked shut. Yeah. And he could not get the oven open, so he had smoke coming out of his oven <laughs> and. He called Butterball, 1-800-Butterball. And, of course, the first thing we told him was, hang up the phone, call 911. <laughs> Man. So, like, did how long do you guys stay on the phone with him in this case? Like, like, did you, like, like, I'm, like... Did you tell him how to how to get his oven back open? Did you, like, did, did, did it end up okay, or did they go out to 
to eat somewhere else? Did you get any follow-up from these folks? Well, actually, um, the, my, my office mate, she sits right next to me, received that call. And she did say, if it's an electric oven, unplug it. Yeah. And he did. So he was able to open the oven. And was so the turkey really, salvageable or unsalvageable? I don't think it was salvageable, no. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, the thing is, how would yeah, you we don't not, have, yeah. I've gotten that call. People are looking for an anecdote for I had someone in the again in the south and he had he was cooking turkeys in these in the pits and in a you know pit in the ground yeah. and he said he does it every year and this year one of them burned and it burned to a crisp <laughs> so he was looking for an anecdote he said my wife is going to kill me yeah yeah I'm sorry, you can't unburn oh, no. something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no anecdote for yeah. a burned turkey. You, uh, you, you know, you'd be you'd be up for some sort of Nobel Prize if you could unburn food. That would be a, a miracle. <laughs> um, that would okay, okay Dave. There's, there's your assignment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. I, I wouldn't. I would definitely be a lot richer if I could figure out how to uh, how to do that. <clears throat> now, what about people doing things like you, you're anti jacuzzi thawing? Although, seems to me it would work, <laughs> right? Because your thawing methods, yeah, they no, take really, a long yeah. time. The thawing methods take a long time. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. It's definitely a lot of work, um, especially if it's a large turkey. If it's, it, We allow 30 minutes per pound, changing the water every 30 minutes, uh, placing it. You could, you know, people, you could put it in the bathtub to do that, uh, in, a, in a tub, and not, not really the hot tub, um, in a bucket. But um, a, a 20 pound turkey, if you think about it, would take 10 hours. That's a of long changing time. in the water every 30, That's a long time. 30 minutes. Yeah. And it is a long time. Every time but I've it ever. And it's food safe. Yeah, because like you recommend how many days to thaw in the fridge? It's like four, right? Well, we recommend four, four pounds per day. So again, that 20 pound turkey would take five full days to thaw in the refrigerator. I want everyone that to sink in because nobody actually thinks about that. You are saying that to non-force thaw something in a fridge is a five-day situation for a 20-pound turkey. Five days. In other words, it is already too late. It's too late. Do you know, you you probably can't recommend this, but uh, I throw a circulator. I I throw it in a circulator and circulate it in its brine at 40 to thaw it. 40 Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that, that's, that's, uh, circulators are great. That's a great use for it. Yeah. Bzzz, just keep it going. It helps to have one of the old school circulators that is uh, sterilizable because it's made of, like, stainless. But, yeah. Yeah, you know, we do recommend that you leave the turkey in its original wrap when you, uh, when you thaw it like that. Taking it out of the wrapping, that's... That opens a, a whole lot of problems. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend leaving it in its original wrapper. Uh, give me some more. Give me some more weird and like you know huge, huge mistakes, un- unrectifiable errors. Okay, well, you know, again, a lot of trends going around. We often get calls about questioning: Can they thaw their turkey in the dishwasher? Yeah. Uh, in the clothes dryer. Ooh. I actually did receive that call, and the, as I said, no, no, that, yeah. that's not a method that we recommend. She then turned away from the phone and said to whoever, she said, take it out. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Now, the dryer seems like a horrible idea. Now, the washer, you could tenderize it, right? You throw the brine in the in the in a vertical washer. Boop, 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 boop. It's very similar to the machines that take the feathers off, right? Boop, 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 boop. Oh, yeah. You know, tumble brine that thing. Uh, that you know, that I, seems like I that's a win. No, you know, and then you know, just know. Run, run it through a cycle, and it's good. Do you remember back in the day when everyone was trying to cook corn in their di- in their dishwashers? That was a oh, thing. Oh, no, I've not oh, heard yeah. that. Yeah, that was a thing. I've Everyone was like, I'm going to cook corn in the dishwasher because they wanted to cook a lot of corn. And so they would say, that, but the dish, it just doesn't work. Your dishwasher is not usually, not usually hot enough unless you have a sanitized site or accurate enough. I did once go to a place where they were using steam washers, like, like airport steam washers to cook corn. And it was good, but those were industrial hardcore wow. units. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how food safe that would be. I just have to say. Well, you know. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you can't recommend things that are, that are you, know, <laughs> I, you know, completely, completely unsafe. Uh, all right. We only have uh, like 42 seconds left. Uh, and I want to thank you so much because I know this is the busiest season of the year uh, for you to come on and talk turkey from uh, Butterball. Any sort of words of encouragement you can give people uh, on the way out other than to text you? I hear 24 hours a day for the next couple of days. You guys are are on text, not live on phone, but on text 24-7, right? That is correct, Dave. Yes, yeah. yes, we're available via text. But we, we're super busy, so it may take a little bit of time to get back to you. But um, we also have email. We're on the social networks. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, so many ways, Butterball.com. We have a lot of instructional videos on Butterball.com, which may answer your questions. And, of course, our website, Butterball.com, with uh, lots of lots of good advice and recipes. And a shout-out to my son, Will. Uh, definitely a shout-out to your son, Will. We, uh, we appreciate having him as a uh, patron. And thank you so much, Barbara, for coming on. Happy Thanksgiving, and I hope your turkey is uh, – I'm sure your turkey is going to be great. I don't even have to ask. You, you run the turkey <laughs> – yeah, obviously, your turkey's going to be great. I hope my turkey's great. How about that? Happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Oh, I'm Thank you, Dave. Happy Thanksgiving to you and all your listeners. <laughs> all right. Cooking issues. Baby 